All right. So welcome back to The Social Brain. Uh, today, we have a, a really cool topic that we're going to be discussing. I mean, this is my kind of favorite set of brain regions. Uh, but something that I really want everyone to consider before we really jump into this conversation is what is it about human cognition that really kind of makes it unique, that kind of sets it apart from a lot of the other animals in the animal kingdom, save maybe some of the higher apes. Uh, but what a lot of the research really is starting to show is that we as humans are very kind of deliberative in nature, which what that really means is that we're able to think about lots of different scenarios in our future. We're able to think about what might go wrong and what, what can probably like go right if we go this way. And we can simulate all of these different kind of future environments, future scenarios, and then we can choose which one we're going to like actually act towards, behave towards. Uh, which is very different than the way that, that animals think. Uh, most animals are kind of trial and error learners, which is called instrumental learning, where they just kind of randomly explore until they find something that works. And so we as humans, we can think, we can remember decades in the past, and we can form this like really kind of concrete narrative identity about who we are, how we fit into society. But we can use all of that past to really create these like amazing future scenarios that really guide our behavior in a certain direction. And this kind of internal dialogue, this thought process is really in a set of regions that seem to be expanded in humans. Um, and it's going to be kind of the topic today. This kind of set of regions is what together are called the default mode network. Um, and I think we're kind of setting the stage too, uh, to really get in. I think our next episode, we're going to dive into to meditation and mindfulness um, and understanding how the default mode works will really kind of give you some tools for uh, combating depression, anxiety, all kinds of stuff like that. So um, I'm Taylor Guthrie. I'm a social neuroscientist. Uh, this is the Social Brain Podcast. Kick it over to this guy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm Andrew. I'm the, the host of the channel Sense of Mind and um, co-host of The Social Brain. So uh, yeah, as Taylor said, we're going to be talking about the default mode network today. And um, I, on the thumbnail of this video, you'll notice I, I wrote it as the brain's storyteller. And um, I think that captures a bit of a lot of what the default mode network does. And um, we'll get more into that. But I just wanted to mention, um, we've got a chat going. So if you guys have any questions or comments or anything, make sure to throw them in the chat and we will address those as they come up. So uh, thanks everyone for being here and um, we'll get into it. So so Taylor, do you wanna start with, I mean, you, you kind of just mentioned a lot of why it's important, but maybe we could go into it a little bit deeper. What is, what's so important about the default mode network or about some of the cognitions that you just mentioned? Yeah, yeah. I think that this having this knowledge about this kind of set of, of brain regions that really is different than a lot of the other animals in the animal kingdom is that it gives you a lot of power. It gives you some insight into maybe how your own mind works. Uh, and what a lot of the, the literature, a lot of the research is starting to show is that things like depression, especially kind of ruminative, ruminative depression. So the type of depression where you're constantly dwelling on thoughts, thinking about yourself, thinking about your social environment, all of these bad things that may be happening. Uh, a lot of that is happening in this default mode network. And so uh, understanding kind of where that stuff is coming from, how that stuff works, anxiety seems to be really tied into this whole network. Um, it's this idea that, you know, it, it is our greatest strength, right? Our ability to have this uh, kind of future looking uh, like planning ability. Uh, it allows us to be incredibly social, uh, to kind of maintain these long-term relationships with uh, with mates, but also with kind of the, the people that we work with in our environment. Uh, but these, these strengths can also really kind of come at a cost as well, because if we really kind of dwell on them too much, if we get too caught up in them, then they tend to be kind of sources of unhappiness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that I think rings true in people's personal experience. Um, just the, the blight of overthinking things right? I mean, just trying to, and it could be about the future. It could be, you know, anxieties about what could happen, um, 
thinking about all the different hypothetical scenarios, but also ruminating about your past and about all the mistakes that you've made and often in social scenarios, it seems like uh, where we, you know, subject ourselves to this kind of ruminative thought. And, um, and so it'll be good to, to try and figure out what are the strengths of the default mode network and what are the, the pitfalls and uh, kind of how can we recognize when we're engaging in uh, the, you know, the helpful kind of, uh, of this cognition. And then when we're, you know, falling into that rumination. I think you, I think you touched on something that, uh, that everybody kind of relates to, especially in these social situations. Like imagine that, that scenario where you're like with a significant other, or you're maybe with a friend, uh, and they, they criticize you, they call you out, they tell you that you're doing something wrong, or they, they kind of make fun of you in a certain way your brain goes into like defense mode, right? It starts to come up with all of these different scenarios of how they may be wrong and how you may be right. Uh, all of that internal rumination, uh, those thoughts are all kind of being produced by this network to try to like regain some type of equilibrium to give you the sense that you have this fulfilled need, that you're accepted, that you're recognized. Um, but sometimes it just kind of goes into overdrive. And we need to learn how to how to hit the brakes on it and how to kind of pull out from that and really kind of be in the present moment. Right. And I think if people are thinking, well, a lot of what you're talking about just sounds like the normal course of thoughts. It almost because it, it seems like those that kind of thinking dominates so much of our mental life, um, they would be right. And this is part of the reason why it's called the default network. Right. And so maybe we should jump into how it was discovered because it, it kind of tells you a lot about what this network is doing. Yeah, uh, I think the, the really cool thing about the default mode network is that it has a really cool story. Uh, we weren't looking for it. Uh, the researchers that stumbled across it uh, did not expect for this to come out in, in the data at all. Um, when so you have to think neuroimaging, the, the ability to really kind of peer someone's brain uh, is a really new science. If we're thinking about kind of the history of science, I mean, that's it's within the last 20 years that we've really kind of dug in and really been able to look inside people's brains. And when we first started to look in people's brains, we were having them do external tasks. So we we're trying to figure out how vision worked. We were trying to figure out how attention worked and how memory worked. And so we were having them engaging in these very kind of effortful tasks where they had to find something on the screen or they had to remember something or they had to attend here or here. And the way that, the way that all of this kind of analysis works for the neuroimaging is that you usually, it's all relative. You're comparing what they're, what's happening in the brain when they're attending to something when they're remembering something compared to when they're not doing anything and there was this idea that that whole when you're not doing anything they thought it was like a lot of other physiology where there's kind of this rest baseline of like your brain's not really doing anything when you're not actively engaging with the world right and so a lot of the studies they had these things that they were looking for but then they also had this rest condition and they were usually seeing like, okay, what, what is more active when someone is attending to some, something, when someone is remembering something compared to this kind of rest? Uh, and you get this set of brain regions. So for like memory, you get hippocampus. Uh, for attention, you get these regions in the parietal lobe or whatever. Um, but what, what kind of is really shocking is that there was this other thing in all of their data that was usually a lot more robust, this huge finding that all of these people didn't look at. If you looked at what was more active during rest than during all of these other things, this whole network of regions came on board. And it was, uh, I mean, we can't, I don't want you to get lost in like what the names of all of these regions are, but there's uh, there's regions of the, the frontal lobe, the medial portion. So it's kind of the, the midline uh, of that frontal lobe. Uh, there's some regions back here above your ear called the temporal parietal junction. And then there's some regions kind of in the middle, in the back, uh, kind of the posterior cingulate cortex, which is really tied into kind of our memory systems. Um, and they, they, thought, they thought that it was just something that had gone wrong. They thought that there was some confound in all of these studies. Um, and so they started to really look at this over and over, over like 10 years. 
Um, and they started to find that there is this network of regions that when we're not actively doing something, our brain engages in a different type of thought. Uh, it's not that it's just going down to rest, that it's not doing anything. It's engaging in mind wandering, in daydreaming, so to say, right? We're, we, uh, I've talked to Andrew about this before, and it's going to come up a lot on, uh, on our next episode when we dive into mindfulness and meditation. But there's this idea of these thoughts just coming from somewhere, right? We're not actively creating these thoughts. We're not like trying to have these thoughts. But if you just try to sit there in silence and not think about anything, it's really, really hard, right? These things are just popping up. What you maybe forgot to, you forgot to take the trash out or uh, you have like a new thing coming up, a birthday party coming up or whatever. Uh, and so you're thinking about all the things that you have to buy at the store to get that. Those thoughts are just coming from somewhere. And that is the default mode kind of coming online. And that's what they started to kind of find. And that's, it's interesting that, that, um, you know, just from the subjective experience side, from the first person side that, um, you know, we, we know that those, those thoughts are constantly coming online, but that the, the expectation was that the brain would be in this baseline low activity state. Um, you know, even though we all have that experience of, of those thoughts coming up. Um, but I wonder, you know, I feel like people kind of, when it, when it was first discovered, seemed to think that uh, it wasn't really doing anything, right? Like it was just kind of the, the natural state of the brain. And it wasn't really consequential that this network was turned on. Um, or maybe it wasn't even you know, turned on, it was just the intrinsic activity of the brain, mm -hmm. right? Was That was kind of the, the thinking when it first totally. was discovered? Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the, the early kind of explanations of the default mode were that it was what's called task negative. So when you're engaged in a task, when you're outwardly focusing your attention, when you're working on something, when you're like trying to do some type of mental something, um, in those situations, you have these kind of attention networks that are on, these outwardly focused things. But then when you're disengaged from a task, when you're not doing anything, then all of a sudden this other set of regions comes on. And like Andrew was saying, it seemed to be that it was just kind of this like this baseline of like, okay, when I'm not doing anything, I'm coming back to, to rest, to baseline or whatever. Um, but as we've probed this, I think there's been over 6,000 like um, peer-reviewed journal articles that have been written about kind of the functions of the default mode network. We've really kind of broken this thing wide open and we've seen that it's not just this passive thing. It's really engaged in very specific types of thought processes. Thought processes that involve something about kind of the self, something about kind of our actions, our, our future, where we're going, our social environment. Um, it's incredibly active during social cognition, during all of these things. So it's it's not just that it's off when we're doing tasks and then it's on when we're resting. Um, it's on when we're engaged in this. Uh, uh, it looks like my audio is, is cracking a little bit. Um, <laughs> So I apologize for that. I'll I'll check something real quick. Yeah, thank you for but, letting us yeah. know. Um, Andrew, you can. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I mean, I think uh, you know, one one way to kind of uh, think about this is like when you are engaged in conscious problem solving and you're trying to figure out the answer to some kind of question, um, you know there's a lot of activity going on in your brain that you're not aware of. So when you stop thinking specifically about the math problem that you're trying to solve and um, these other regions come online that uh, there may be some kind of unconscious processing going on to uh, help you solve these problems. And that may have to do with the default mode network, but it's, you know, a lot of this, I think, um, it's just good to think about what it's like to be in a state where you're not actively trying to solve any kinds of problems. There's just a lot of seemingly random thoughts that are popping up, um, but it does seem like there's kind of purposeful activity going on in this network of regions. Um, and interestingly, uh, we'll see if 
Are you back on Taylor? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, if, if it fixed. I know we're uh, Andrew's traveling, so it may have something to do with our, our internet connection. So uh, bear with us. I apologize if if you can't kind of track along, but uh, let us know if it seems to be fixed. If it still seems to be a problem, but but right. um, but yeah, I think we can uh, kind of take off. So we're talking about self-generated thought, right? this idea of internally created thought instead of it being tied to some type of stimulus in the environment. So some type of uh, something happens in your external environment and that kind of gets you into this mode of, of kind of paying attention to the outside world or whatever. Uh, It's very different to have these things that, that aren't created by something in the external environment. And a lot of researchers didn't think that this was possible really. When they first started to kind of look at the at the brain, they were thinking that like everything that the brain did was reactive in nature, that it was reacting to something that happened in the external world, um, which when you really think back on it, it's like, where were these scientists? Like, why weren't they actually thinking about their own kind of mental uh, experience, right? Because we know just from daily activity and something that uh, I think Andrew was kind of hinting at is that. The research has shown that uh, that our our rumination, our time spent in these kind of internal thoughts, is about fifty percent of our life. Uh, that we're disengaged with the outside world, and we're kind of in our own head. We're in these kind of thoughts and these patterns and these plans and all of these things. Um, and so it was it was really kind of shocking to see that like uh, the early kind of visions of what the brain was was that it was just reactive that there was none of this kind of self-generated stuff yeah and um i think one thing i wanted to mention um is and i think we'll get to this later too but that it's not just like a general thought creating network it's not like it's just one region that is just like the thought creation (laughs) brain region it's like um, composed, well, some researchers believe it's composed of subsystems. I think that's, that's, um, kind of the consensus. And so there's like, there's different, uh, regions that are contributing different kinds of cognition to the overall function of the default mode network. So like Taylor mentioned, there's some of these that are involved in self-referential thought and, you know, thinking about ourselves, but also others that are involved in like, um, autobiographical memory, meaning like memories about your life, uh, being like the hippocampus specifically. And then there's other regions involved in like, um, you know, uh, cognitive control. Um, and then the default mode network itself has, you know, fairly complex interactions with other networks in the brain. Like, um, we've talked about in a different interview or, I don't know if it was an episode of the social brain or one of the interviews we did, but um, about uh, cognitive control networks, networks involved in executive function. So the default mode network is um, one of the brain's uh, intrinsic networks, and it is interacting with and switching. It's it is switching on and off as these other networks switch on and off as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you touched on a couple really kind of powerful and important things in that uh, something that I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode was this idea of of being, having this kind of identity, uh, this narrative identity, this sense of self. Uh, something that sets us apart as, as humans is our ability to kind of create this kind of coherent um, story about how we fit into our environment, how we fit into kind of the, how the world works, like where's our place, where's our meaning. Um, and all of this different type of thought tends to be really kind of tied into to the default mode network. And, and Andrew was kind of hinting at like, there's usually kind of this interplay between that and kind of some of these other networks at play. So you have the control net- network and you have the attention network. Uh, which is something I think we're really going to, we'll really get into when we get into kind of mindfulness and things like that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for letting us know about all the audio stuff. And so uh, I think one of the things that uh, could be really helpful to really kind of dive into is what these thoughts usually are. 
Um, because usually when this first came on, a lot of people were talking about it as being this, this daydreaming uh, kind of network. Uh, but the term daydreaming tends to kind of invoke this kind of fantastical, like thinking about uh, all of these amazing things that might happen in the future, having this really kind of positive quality to it. Uh, but when you really sample people, when you really ask people what it is they're thinking in a given moment, what kind of is coming to their mind, oftentimes those thoughts that the default mode is creating tend to be very mundane. They tend to be about kind of our needs in that moment, the things that are pressing, right? Things that may have happened earlier that week that are still on our mind, things that that may be coming up in the near future that we have to plan for. Uh, but those are the types of thoughts that really tend to dominate the, the pain in its kind of default mode. Uh, it's something that I come, at, come back to a lot. And uh, we talked about it in our last episode. But the fact that the brain is very needs based, it's trying to, it's trying to accomplish things. Right, it has as physiological needs. It needs to eat and it needs to drink. And like the brain, especially the default mode network, uh, consumes like twenty percent of your caloric intake. So it needs all of these things. But uh, it also, as humans, we also have these incredible social needs that we've created. These kind of beliefs about how we fit into our society, and all of that needs some type of kind of internal model of where it is that we've been and where it is that we're going in the future in order to accomplish all of these different needs that we have, right? We need to be able to kind of simulate a future that says, this is the future where I am going to be kind of socially accepted or I'm going to be recognized or I'm going to have enough money to, to feed myself and to put food on the table. And we need to be able to think through all of these different kind of avenues and these different scenarios. Um, and that's really, I think, what made this necessary in terms of evolution in the first place. So you're thinking that uh, this this ability to um, kind of ruminate on our needs and what's going to further our goals and our interests may be kind of the core function of the default mode network? I, I, I think so. And it's uh, when you really look evolutionarily, right? So if you if you look at the the brains of kind of macaque monkeys and then up to uh, apes and then hominins and up to us, uh, our brain has tripled in size uh, in the last like million years or whatever. Um, and there've been this, some really kind of incredible studies that have looked at um, how you would have to expand a monkey brain for it to look like a human brain. And it's not this uniform expansion. It's not just that the brain just got bigger. It's that certain regions got bigger. And the certain regions that got bigger tend to be the default mode regions. It, te it tends to be these regions that were allowing us to really think about um, how to accomplish these things that we were doing, right? Uh, put yourself back into the mind of, of someone that was like in a, a tribal setting, right? that has these, these very strong um, just survival needs on the first hand, but you as a group have really kind of captured the ability to feed the group in a way that other animals haven't. So you don't have to think as much about your physiological needs or your safety needs because you have safety in numbers, um, but you do have to think about where you fit into that tribe, right? How it is that you mm. are providing some type of benefit to that tribe. Like where, where my skills fit in, what do I do that makes this tribe better? Um, and those types of things, I think, uh, require us to really think about kind of all the things that have happened to us. So think about the past, bring in all of these past experiences, but then use all of those past experiences to kind of simulate this idea of, of like what it is that, that I'm going to be. How am I going to fit in? How am I going to be better as time goes on? You see what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And if we think back to what we we're saying about the kinds of, of thoughts that tend to dominate when we're not actually engaged in something else, when the default mode network is turned on, um, I, I mentioned it was uh, often like if we have done some, or, you know, done some kind of social faux pas, we've done, um, <laughs> you know, somebody has 
like we're we're not um, maybe being that person that we want to be within that tribe, or we're not seeing ourselves that way. We are noticing all these mistakes we've made, and maybe that's that's not just um, you know our anxieties. It's maybe a functional or a, a relic of our evolution, or maybe it's still functional yeah. for us in society today. I think it it is because often we do have to have that quiet time to reflect on difficult social situations. If you've had a conflict with a family member or something, um, it sometimes yeah. takes, it definitely takes time. And sometimes it takes days or weeks or months to, to really conceptualize what happened and what you maybe did wrong or what the other person did wrong and how you can learn from that. And I think it's, uh, it does seem like that, that sort of happens automatically. If you're, you know, if you're not a completely antisocial psychopath. <laughs> and I think that you're, you're touching on something that's, that's really important in the kind of the context of everything, everything that we're talking about, because uh, these, these thoughts are not like the, the term daydreaming kind of invokes this like positive, like thinking about the future, but a lot of times these are ne negative. Uh, they're, they're thinking about how it is that we're not accomplishing our needs, right? What did I do wrong? Why am I not important enough? Why do I not, why am I, why do I not matter? Right. Um, and it's those, those really intense psychological needs that we have of, uh, of fitting in, right. Of being accepted by our peers that really kind of drive our brain to try to find equilibrium to try to come up with some type of story, like Andrew mentioned, like this, this tends to be the storytelling regions of the brain. Uh, how is it that I can kind of make sense of everything that has happened uh, so that I can kind of feel like my needs are met? Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that storytelling that you mentioned, it's, it's, it seems like kind of a, a really important aspect or, or feature of the default mode network that it's not just like giving us points of information it seems to like construct a narrative a, a really big high level conceptual understanding of of what's happening rather than just giving you kind of points of information um and something that we touched on is like part of our ability to do this and to create a meaningful story about the social world is our ability to get inside the minds of other people and this network is heavily involved in that right yeah yeah so i uh, that's that's one of the coolest things about social cognition um so other animals we i mean some of the the higher apes may have this ability uh but uh especially us as adults uh have the the ability to to really take on the perspective of someone else to, to simulate what someone may be thinking about us Right. So it's not just this reactive thing. It's not that someone did something and then I'm just kind of reacting to what they said or to what they did. Um, but it's that I can now go into my own head and I can try to like take their perspective. I can even have like a conversation with them in my head. Uh, and most of that is is all happening in um, there are certain regions that may be more active in the default mode for this type of stuff, like temporal parietal junction, which is kind of up here. Um, and the dorsal portion of the medial prefrontal cortex. But this, this idea is really powerful when you think about what kind of led to us needing to do that in the first place, right? Uh, we, in these social environments, there's a lot of cost from damaging relationships, right? If, if a relationship is really providing us uh, sustenance, is providing us a means of, of eating, of feeling safe, and all of these things, then we need to make sure that we're not just reactive in the moment, that maybe we're angry and we just say a bunch of things that we shouldn't have said. Instead, it's a lot more beneficial for us to be able to play out these scenarios of, okay, if I said this, what would they maybe say? And how could they maybe be thinking about this? And what what is their perspective? I know they have a mind of their own. They have emotions of their own. Um, you can go through all of this kind of mental gymnastics and go through all of these different scenarios because of these amazing abilities that we have as humans. Um, but as we've kind of been hinting at, uh, that can sometimes just go off the rails and you can just be doing that way too much. 
uh, and just be in these just loops that, that never really close. Um, something I kind of on a tangent, but I, uh, but something that, that I really got into when I started to study addiction was that uh, oftentimes trauma leads to addiction. So being in an environment when you're young, that you never feel like you're valued, you, you, you're told that, that you don't matter. Uh, you're told that you're never going to amount to anything, that you're never going to accomplish anything. Those tend to produce brains that ruminate on those negative things, right? That I, I think, I mean, this is kind of speculation at this point, but um, I think that in order to kind of tilt the default mode into more of a positive kind of direction, we need some type of like successes in life. We need to, to, to feel like we're actually accomplishing those needs that we actually have, right? Uh, if I have these acceptance needs, right? If I, if I really want to be accepted by my peers and I'm constantly being rejected to, by them, I'm never gaining equilibrium. And so my brain is just going to constantly ruminate on how do I get accepted? How do I get accepted? How do I get accepted? Uh, and that loop never closes unless you can kind of pull yourself out of that and realize that some of these needs are psychological in nature, that we create this belief about needing to be accepted, needing to belong to this group that we're a part of. Um, and that if you're not getting these kind of cues from the environment that are saying that you are that uh, that you are like accepted or whatever, then you need to adapt the way that you think about the situation. And that's really cool about being human too, is that we're able to create all of this internal dialogue around all of that and to, to really pull ourselves out. Sorry, that was kind of a, <laughs> I digress, but. No, it's excellent. And it really um, feeds into this awesome question we got from B Dragon in the chat, which says, um, would you say that the default mode is involved in how we relate to the various hierarchies of human life? I think that stories are a big part of how we understand hierarchies. And just like offhand, yes, exactly. That was actually, the word hierarchy was coming into my mind a few times. And I think absolutely. I think it's, um, you know, what Taylor was just saying, that our, our sense of self is often so wrapped up in the various hierarchies we're a part of, which could be, you know, anything from if you are, uh, in your professional life, like where are you on the, the ladder of, of the corporate ladder or just in society as a whole um, or even within your family or something like that. But I'm sure uh, Taylor's got more to say on that. Uh, I, I think that that's, that is like what drives us. That is kind of being human um, is this kind of meaning making pursuit, this motivation. Um, if you look at, um, so I got really into kind of the evolution, like how did we evolve from like single cells into these multicellular things? Uh, and there's a term that I'm just going to, the only reason I'm bringing that up is there, there's a term that's called exportation of fitness. So when single cells uh, ended up in a big community and they were developing into these multicellular organisms, something had to happen because each of those individual cells at the beginning all did the same thing. They were all kind of able to, to forage for food. They were all able to digest food, all of that kind of stuff. But in order to turn into a multicellular organism, you have to export fitness, which means that some people need to take the job of protecting the organism, while some people need to take the job of digesting food, and some people need to take the job of transporting food. Um, I think that this idea from biology is very much at play in societies, that society itself is this huge organism, and that most of our life is trying to figure out that exportation of fitness question. Where do I fit in? Am I a protector of society? Am I a digester? Am I someone who transports these things? That whole thing creates this pursuit, this kind of, I need to find meaning. I need to find where I fit in this kind of social paradigm and this social hierarchy. Um, and that is, I think, a lot of what drives these psychological needs of, of really kind of creating like, okay, what is my group? I, I, we talk a lot about needing acceptance, right? I need acceptance. I need to belong or whatever. But how do you decide what group you want to belong to? What group you need acceptance from? You need recognition from, right? 
a lot of our time is spent trying to figure out these big questions about like, uh, what is my role? What makes me unique? What are all of these cool things that that are about me that that make me a unique member of this group or of this society? And I think that those questions that where I fit in the hierarchy are really what's driving a lot of this default mode network activity of, of really like your default mode is constantly trying to create a narrative that makes sense of where you are in society. Uh, and we live in a really confusing society these days. Like identity is not something that's easy to fall on. Uh, it used to be a lot easier. You were part of this religion that you were born into. You were part of a, a feudal society. So you were going to grow up as a farmer your whole life. You knew those questions, right? Uh, now we struggle so much with it because it's it's a lot harder to answer those questions. And I think that our brain is constantly in just like overdrive trying to make sense of, of where we are and where we fit. Yeah, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because the the kind of the division of labor economy that you you mentioned it allows us to use our our skills and um, engage our interests and be part of this amazing diverse modern world and really put our best out into it but then it also confronts us with this uh, huge number of options and possibilities and that can just kind of you know too many options can <laughs> drive your brain crazy and the yeah. default mode network, like you said, is going to be kind of going into overdrive, trying to figure out where is our place? What are we suited to do? I think a lot of us have have um, struggled with that. Uh, I, I very much I'm kind of uh, on the side. I'm a I'm a philosophy buff. Uh, there's a there's a quote from Kierkegaard, who's uh, kind of the father of existential philosophy, which is all about meaning making, um, that said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom that anxiety like it's it's great to have all of these options to have so many different things that i can be that i can become but that also comes with this huge cost of having to actually choose something and that process of choosing that deliberation is what really gives us a lot of the anxiety and the depression that we go through uh and there's a there's a, a paper it's a hallmark paper now it's it's quoted we're probably going to bring it up when we talk about meditation and mindfulness in our next episode but that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind uh that the they've they've done the studies they've shown they've like they've sampled people and seen like how often people are ruminating based uh and how often other people are more kind of in the moment um and these people that tend to ruminate a lot that are constantly like dwelling on whether I should make this decision or this decision or are my needs met or this and that. Uh, those are the people that tend to be the most unhappy because it's really hard to come up with answers to those questions, right? Where that default mode, it needs to find, it's trying to find equilibrium on our needs. It's trying to trying to have some type of, of sense of like, I've, I've accomplished something. Um, I've, I've, I've set out to do this. I've set to be accepted. I've set out to be recognized. Uh, and and I found it right. We don't get that a lot of the times. We're constantly dwelling on those things. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's like um, in the past we may have just uh, settled on an option and it may have been good enough, but and and now we have so many and it creates these anxieties. But it, it seems like I wonder if if the trade-off is worth, I, I think it probably is to have all this, uh, the ability to, to pursue your interests and your wants and, um, and Balance. to, uh, decide, yeah, which hierarchy you want to be a part of and how you can, uh, contribute to it and, um, what you want the story of your life to be. It's amazing that we do have that choice in the modern world, but it does, it's not an easy choice and it just keeps, it seems like it just pops up throughout life at, at multiple points for many people. So, so if you're one of those rare people who has a calling and who uh, just, <laughs> you know, that whatever it is, that's what you want to do. That's how you want to live your life. Then, um, you know, congratulations. It's, <laughs> it'll save you a lot of uh, worries and anxieties in the future. Well, I know that I want to be here right now talking about the brain. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think that something that might be really helpful is to dive in a little bit into kind of how how this all works, right? Because we're telling you that like a, a, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind or whatever, but like what's the alternative, right? Uh, 
and so I think it's really important to understand uh, top-down versus bottom-up processing. Uh, and so everything that we're kind of talking about, every, everything that we've been hinting at is all kind of this top-down stuff that we have these, these kind of models of the future of who we want to be and what we want to do that are kind of bringing up all of these thoughts and all of these emotions. Uh, all of that is completely disconnected from the sensory world, right? There's nothing happening in our environment. If you drive the same freeway every day, right? You drive that freeway over and over and over again. It's been five years, it's been 10 years, whatever. Actually think in those moments, am I thinking about driving my car right now? Because oftentimes you're not, right? You're not paying attention to the sensory information that's going on. You're an autopilot. Your body is driving that car. And oftentimes you're up in your head. You're thinking about like what you're going to be doing that day or like what happened or the fight you got in with someone or whatever it is, right? That stuff is not sensory driven. And it's often in opposition to sensory stuff. So usually when default mode stuff is on, sensory stuff is off. Not necessarily off. I guess off is kind of the wrong way to talk about it, but um, it, it is opposed to it. So sensory stuff tends to be really low in activation when default mode is on. Um, and default mode is really high when you're in these kind of mind-wandering modes. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it's it's interesting when we, get, when we do get to uh, mindfulness and meditation about how um, some of some meditation techniques allow you to kind of um, oppose the activity of the default mode network on purpose, but without okay. going into this um, really uh, specific, like, um, what am I trying to say, like cognitive control, um, uh, executive functions, like you're not, you're not thinking about necessarily the outside world, but you may be focusing in on the sensations coming from your body and in that way are able to diminish the activity of the default mode network, or at least um, regions, uh, certain regions that, uh, that are part of the network. Um, but yeah, it is, it, it does seem like we're, we're kind of, when we're in that default mode, we are, we're predicting what the world may be, what we think it should be. And we're not really living in the world as it is. And um, it could, you know, that can be really helpful, allow you to mm -hmm. imagine a future scenario that you you want, that you actually do want to pursue and, and kind of give your life a little bit more meaning and purpose. But then it can also fool you into thinking that this world is this prediction that you made. It's this this simulation uh, that you've created in your in your mind. But um, no, but yeah, and I, yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, I was no, 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 say because no. that, that ties in really well with kind of the, the, the title that we have, kind of this idea of integrating the past, present, and the future, is that uh, the default mode is essentially it's taking what's happening right now, but it's really, it's either in the past or it's in the future, right? You're dwelling on things that happened before or trying to envision this, this future thing that's happening. Um, it's oftentimes not rooted in just the present moment. It's using the present moment to try to understand the future, right? And I think something really powerful that you were just touching on, Andrew, is this idea of when are those moments when you're actually in the moment, right? Um, and you hinted at these, these modes of kind of mindfulness or meditation that turn off even the control network of like, don't even think about trying to control your emotion, trying to control like any of these things, how hard is it to just let the sensory world flood over you, right? Just be in that moment. And so something that I think is, is really kind of interesting. So if we're thinking about kind of bottom-up processing, we're talking about sensory information, right? We're attending to the sensory information in the environment. Um, and in its kind of raw quality, right? We're not kind of filtering it. Because uh, that's something that's that's really important. Our attention can be really narrow. It can be we can be broad, um, but oftentimes we're filtering the world. Right? We have all of the sensory information coming in, and it's a lot. Right? We have like all of the the things that we're touching right now: our clothes, temperature of the room, everything that we're seeing, everything that we're hearing. Uh, there has to be some way of 
focusing meant, right? And I think that's really what a lot of the default mode is, is creating some sense of, of meaning, of purpose, right? Uh, who am I? What's important to me? And that filters the incoming information. Is it saying, okay, I don't really care about everything that's happening in the world. I only care about the things that are important to me, right? The sense of meaning that I have in my life. And so it's really kind of interesting to look at how these two things interact with one another. We have this bottom-up stuff coming up that's just all of this raw sensory information. But we also have these beliefs, these top-down things that are biasing what we pay attention to. And that's powerful. Like, I really want you to kind of dwell on that for a second, because those top-down beliefs are things that you create. They're things that you psychologically are able to sit and say, like, who am I? What do I believe about the world? And those beliefs now are being used to train your brain to look for evidence of those things and to ignore everything else. And so that's, I think, really what that integration is, is we have these, these simulations of who we want to be, of the future. We have all of these experiences that happen to us. The default mode is using all of that to create this model of our beliefs. And that model is then being used to kind of bias what we're paying attention to, what's coming in from the environment, because there's just way too much. And so we have to filter all of this information that's coming in, and we have to just focus in on, on what's important to us. That's, I mean, that's just fascinating to think about that it's this, it's kind of a filter for, um, for attention in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a functional active filter. And like one of these comments we got earlier in the chat was, uh, was about your crackling audio and said, overall, <laughs> it's understandable. Our brains will just have to filter out the distortion. So that's a good <laughs> example of maybe your, your default mode network, uh, placing a lot of value on the social brain podcast mm -hmm. as something to, uh, to enhance your life, hopefully. Um, but yeah, that, that's a really great point. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good to keep in mind that, that the default mode, like we said earlier is in, um, balance with other networks in the brain. It's kind of always, uh, interacting with and switching, uh, lowering its activity. And then the activity of these other networks are going up. Um, which kind of, as Taylor was just suggesting, is maybe the default is kind of tuning the uh, the attention networks to kind of decide what they're going to focus on. Is that yeah, accurate, you'd say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, I think you kind of hinted at something that's really cool, too, is that like you have to think that like your brain, your whole brain is not on all the time, right? Uh, that your conscious experience is switching from either this kind of internally generated thought of like, what do I have to do? What's going on? Uh, to actually paying attention to the outside world, right? If you're engaged in some kind of a task, then thinking about all of those things, whether you took the trash out is going to get in the way of you being able to actually do that, right? Um, and so those those oppositions are really what is, uh, there's a there's this philosopher that I, that I really like called Husserl. And he was one of the first philosophers to to start. He he used to kind of it was like he put uh, he was looking inward. He was trying to like understand his own cognition, uh, and he was putting like reflector tape on like certain thoughts, like when they happened. Right. Uh, that's kind of what I I want the audience to think about doing in these moments. Is like now that you know kind of that there are these different systems, right? Uh, that that like sometimes you're you're in your head, you're in these thoughts, and other times you're kind of you're in the world. Up oh, and now I'm gone. <laughs> there we go. You're good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, is that you can flag those moments, right? You can put some reflector tape on them so that next time it happens, you can say it's happening right now, right? I'm in my head. Oh no, actually I'm in the world, right? I. Uh, and that starts to give you the power of, of really thinking about how these things work with one another so that you can come out of kind of this rumination, this internal generated thought, uh, and start participating in kind of the present moment, uh, in the sensory information that's coming in. And something I hinted at earlier, this whole idea of like biasing your attention, um, a lot of what mindfulness is, this is just kind of a preview of the next episode, uh, is turning those filters off. 
is is really trying to to like experience the world as it is without having this just like uh this expectation about what you want to see and who you want to see uh we're having some weird comments come in i guess (laughs) (laughs) some spam coming in yeah uh about finding love so i guess that's appropriate right (laughs) present moment love it yeah so (laughs) uh but it's it's really about uh, how do I how do I in this moment how do I stop all of these expectations that I have about the world, right? About who I want to be, what I want to become, whether I'm accepted, whether I'm being recognized. All of these expectations, drop them, right? Don't think about them, and just be in the present moment. Think about there's a there's kind of the the mindfulness stuff. I mean, this is totally like a, a preview into the next episode, but uh, of like the the five four three two one. Name five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch. All right, uh, and it it allows you to start just paying attention to the sensory stuff, not what you want it to be, but just what it is, and it gives you a preview into maybe how like. Our brain used to work before we got really caught up in, like B Dragon was saying, in these hierarchies that we're a part of, right? Just being in kind of the moment, doing whatever it is you're doing. So, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and it can be as simple as just focusing on your breath. That's kind of always the, the first thing that you learn in a mindfulness meditation is just to focus on your breath. And it seems so boring for most people when they first start it because it's like oh well i have all these this rich uh you know mental life these experiences i'm thinking about and my place in the various hierarchies and my plans for the future and you just want me to stop and just focus on my breath but it can it's often for people once they do it for you know more than about five minutes it can be this really relaxing really helpful experience that can kind of orient you to the rest of your day and just like kind of allow you to decide what's important. And we'll definitely, this is, we are totally previewing next week's episode, (laughs) but it like will allow you to, you know, get into, I wonder if, if these networks kind of need to rest sometimes, like if they need to just stop being active for a little while. And then when they come back, um, maybe the the interactions with the other networks or the the memories that we've formed in the meantime can feed into what the default mode network is doing and give us like a healthier relationship to our own thoughts and our own um, understanding of ourselves in the world when we can step back and evaluate the world not only pay attention to our sensory experience and and uh, do the the kind of mindfulness meditation we were just talking about but also engaging with the world, interacting with the things that you do or that you like to do, your hobbies, your profession, um, you know, your relationships in your life, actually engaging in that and then seeing what are my values, what is important to me. And then that, that understanding can maybe funnel into the, the function of the default mode and make it easier to stop yourself from going down this negative uh, anxiety, ruminative type of thinking, um, or at least in a way that is actually helpful rather than just spinning in circles about all the various ways you may have messed up in a social situation without deciding what is actually important to you, what are your values, and and what kind of person do you want to be in the world? because ultimately it is kind of, it is for you, you know, this is not for you to please other people, but it's for you to be able to have a good life and live mm-hmm. in this complex social world. And um, yeah. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent. I, I, no, I, I think you touched on some, some really important stuff uh, because the first thing that, that I think was, was really apparent in what you just said is that this is not like default mode, bad, 
you know, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, we're talking about balance. We're talking about trying to to stop kind of the, the overactive qualities of it, because there's still a lot about the default mode network that's really, really good. There's a lot of really uh, interesting work that's being done that's looking at how it's probably the seat of, of creativity, of being able to kind of like incubate on ideas and like let this like combination of thoughts come together and create these really cool things. Um, it, it also allows us to, to find meaning, to find purpose, and to, to kind of motivate us towards things. Um, but if we're always in that, then we're never, never engaging in the actual world. And that, that kind of resonates with what you see in a lot of symptomology of depression, right? Is that there's no engagement. There's no actually like going out and doing things. Um, and that's this other part of your brain that's that's not getting enough uh, attention. It's the attention network is not getting enough attention. <laughs> uh, but uh, we have to really, really keep in mind the the ideas of plasticity in all of this. In that, uh, especially for people that are like trying to use this as like a useful way out of rumination, that it's not just like an all or nothing thing. It's not just like, one day I can just, you know, I, I can turn off my default mode network now and I, I'm totally fine. Um, it's, it's this like little bits at a time. It's noticing that it's at, that it's at play, right? Noticing that it's on, that it's doing something. Um, and then taking that moment to say, okay, I'm going to step away from that rumination and I'm going to be in the present moment. I'm going to allow my attention network, my dorsal attention network to really kind of engage with the world. And the more you do that, the more balance you're building in your brain. You're actually allowing the connections to build. Uh, your brain is not static. It's plastic, right? It's able to change. And those little, little bits that you're doing every day of like, okay, I'm stepping away from all of this, this internal thought, and I'm stepping into the moment. Or I'm stepping away from the moment, and I'm actually spending some time thinking about who I am and meaning and purpose and creativity right um it's not one or the other it's really trying to find a balance between the two that i think is really where a lot of the power lies yeah yeah and i think just to uh add on to that a little bit it's it's always good to remember that it's not that the default mode network completely switches off when you start <laughs> focusing on something and it's not that these attention networks and these cognitive control networks uh turn off when the default mode network is is on there's definitely like um, an anti-correlation or you know they're in opposition to each other but um it's true that that these brain regions that are involved in these various networks are active um kind of regardless of of what you're doing they definitely go down and up depending on what kinds of tasks you're doing but it's never the case that well it's all probably very rarely the case that you have completely switched off one or the other. So uh, there's, you know, you're not, there's nothing wrong with you if you're kind of like thinking about yourself when you're engaging in, in a task or if you're, um, yeah. you know, you're, you're it's, it's just, uh, it's important, I think, to remember that these networks are um, in balance with each other, like you just said, that's kind of the, the neural basis of what you're talking about to some extent. And I think uh, we'll get into more of kind of how that switch happens from from one to the other. Uh, what are some of the tools that we can use to to really kind of engage in those types of processes? Uh, I think the next episode is going to be really cool. Uh, we're going to really get into a lot of the the research, but we thought it was really important to really lay the groundwork for what the default mode actually is. Um, because if you start getting into kind of the brain stuff around meditation, around mindfulness, all of it talks about the default mode network. Um, and, and that makes sense because when you are quiet, when you're in that moment and you're just with yourself, you just have these thoughts that are just coming from somewhere, right? And so it's important to know kind of what that is and where that kind of may be coming from in order to have some kind of power over it, I guess you can say. So awesome. Well, um, Taylor, it's always really great talking to you. Um, I hope if anybody has any more questions or comments, um, I don't think I see anything remaining in the chat. 
Um, but if you do just comment on our one of these videos, either on cha uh, Taylor's channel or mine, and we'll try to get to it in the next episode or after that. But yeah, like uh, Taylor mentioned, we're going to be talking about the neuroscience of mindfulness and meditation next time. And um, I think that should be really fun, really interesting. Um, so yeah, just again, let us know if there's anything you want us to cover in a future episode and we'll try to get to it. Yeah. And if you if you enjoy what we're doing and you want to kind of help this to continue, uh, then then we we need some support from you guys in terms of uh, subscriptions. So make sure that you're subscribed to, to my channel, The Cellular Republic and to Andrew's channel, Sense of Mind. Uh, leave a comment if you're listening to this on a podcast or a review. Um, and also, my wife also runs uh, an Etsy shop. So, or I, I mean, she has a gift shop apart from Etsy too, but um, she sells all kinds of merchandise that's like neuroscience related, that's therapy related. Uh, really cool. You can check it out in the comments in, in my video. I have a, uh, a whole family that, that I need to feed. So if I'm going to keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. Keep Taylor's family fed. And um, <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys.